the reward of faith is that we always land in our Father's arms. The reward of faith is that we always land in the arms of our Father. The writer to the book of Hebrews wrote to a group of believers who were undergoing tremendous persecution for their faith. We think that they were Christians of Hebrew descent living in Italy. And they were very tempted to just give up the faith and walk away. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, listen, it is difficult. It is tough. This Christian walk requires that you live in faith. It requires that you keep your eyes centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you, he says, to look back at the example of believers who have preceded you. Chapter 11, Abraham, Noah, Moses, and be encouraged by their example. I want you to understand faith is placing your trust in the person of the Lord and in his promises. And then in the 12th chapter, he begins to move into how we run this race And the passage we're going to look at today, he's saying the reward at the end of the journey is worth it. In fact, the reward begins right now and it continues till we see Jesus someday in person. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 through 24. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 through 24. To give you a quick overview of the book of Hebrews, or rather I should say the 12th chapter of Hebrews, where we've been the last few weeks, verses 1 through 3 speak of how we run this race for the Lord with perseverance. That is, we stay after it. It is a marathon. It is not a 50-yard dash. And so we stay after it with Him and for Him. Second, verses 4 through 11 We endure whatever we've got to endure because we are being coached well. Jesus is our coach, and he is coaching us as we run the race. Verses 12 through 17, what do we need to do and what do we need to guard against? He says it's so easy for those weights that we take on in life to bog us down. It is so easy to get distracted and look somewhere else. It's so easy to get into looking behind us and lose the race. you got to keep your eyes centered on Jesus and not pick up anything that's going to slow us down. Verses 18 through 25, we, we will look at today, is the reward for running this race. Now, the book of Hebrews, written to Hebrew Christians, as is traditional, and I've said this before with folks from a Hebrew perspective, the ancient Hebrews communicated in word pictures. Greeks communicated primarily in concepts. The Hebrews love to use word pictures. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give us seven word pictures of the reward. He's going to picture the reward of faith in terms of seven word pictures. So follow these seven word pictures as we move through this. Now in verses 18 through 21, he begins by referencing when the law of God was given on Mount Sinai. In other words, God called the nation of Israel to the 
plains below Mount Sinai, Moses went up on that mountain and he encountered God. And when he encountered God there in Exodus chapter 19 where it's recorded, it was a very intimidating experience. In fact, it was so intimidating that even Moses himself feared to go into the presence of God. There was this sound of the trumpet and the closer you got to the presence of God, the louder the trumpet began to sound. The folks were so overwhelmed by this experience of God as they approached Mount Sinai that they began to back away from the mountain. They did not want to get close to the Lord. Now, many times nowadays, folks don't fear the Lord. They don't fear an experience like Mount Sinai because most people don't take the judgment of God seriously, the presence of God seriously, or the commands of God seriously until they get close to death. And then they decide it's time to take it seriously. These folks had an up-close encounter. They knew what the power of God was like. Many folks give up when they approach the presence of God because they say, man, there's no way I can keep all the Ten Commandments. There's no way I can keep the commandments of God. So they just give up. So what he's writing here and saying to us is, hey, there's a reward if you stay faithful, but you can come into the presence of God because Mount Sinai was what you looked up at and you drew away from and walked in the other direction of. Mount Zion is entirely different. It attracts you to the presence of God and God empowers you to follow Him and keep His commandments. So He's going to draw a contrast here between Mount Sinai of the Old Testament and Mount Zion of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. And what he's describing here is from Exodus 19, when the people of Israel came before Mount Sinai. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, this passage is packed full of Old Testament imagery and metaphor. And we're going to break it down, so don't get overwhelmed by it, okay? But what the writer here is doing is pulling off of a whole lot of Old Testament imagery to bring it into the present. Now, I mentioned before that the Hebrews love to communicate with word pictures. We're going to look at seven word pictures here. Something else I want to share with you as we get into this that will help us in our interpretation of it is looking at the way that he compares the Old Testament word pictures to the New Testament and the new work that God is doing and that he is performing. One other thing that I need to share with you to keep in mind as we move through this. We live in a world of time and space. In other words, we look today as 2020 and we live in this moment and we're traveling through this time. The scriptures don't necessarily always contain themselves to time and space. 
And what he's doing here in this chapter is he is saying that while we are here right now, this side of heaven, we can and we are called to participate in worship in terms of eternity. And that we can worship alongside the folks who are worshiping in heaven. In other words, the worship of the church takes place in two dimensions. Dimension one is in heaven. Dimension two is on this earth. But they're not necessarily disconnected from each other. In fact, what he's going to say is the worship of heaven right now is connected with the worship on this earth. In other words, God is not moving in two different spheres in two different ways totally separated from each other. That he is moving in one way, coordinating the worship of heaven with the worship of this earth. Now, I know that blows our minds, okay? Because when we think of worship, we tend to think of, let's, we're sitting in a building like this on Sunday morning, and our praise band's leading, etc., or uh, if we're out walking in nature and we're admiring what God's done out there, worshiping Him then. But what He's going to show as we'll see through this is that our worship is coordinated directly with the worship of heaven now and for eternity. Okay, seven realities shown by seven word pictures. The first thing He says, verse 22, is that we have come to the city of the living God. And my sermon outline is contained in your Rocky Mountain Connection, so I invite you, if you would, to follow along. We have come to the city of the living God. Now, the Bible says that Abraham, we saw this earlier, was looking for a city. He's saying we have found the city that Abraham was looking for. This city of the living God is both present right now, and it is future. Now, Mount Sinai that he addresses in verse 18 is that mountain over there in Israel where the Ten Commandments were received. It was God's dwelling. It was frightening. And it was unapproachable. If you can imagine, if you had been with the nation of Israel that day and you had watched Moses going up Mount Sinai, you would have heard loud thunder. You would have seen lightning. The mountain would have disappeared and would like like powerful dark storm clouds. This trumpet would have gotten louder and louder and louder. You wouldn't have even wanted to get close to it because it spoke so much of the power of God, the presence of God, and the judgment of God as God came down to meet with Moses. What he writes about here, he starts talking about another mountain. Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the term that was used for the mountain range around the city of Jerusalem. David, the great king of Israel, captured Mount Zion, the mountain range around Jerusalem, and he made it not only the political capital of Israel, but even more so the spiritual capital of Israel. And he moved the ark of God, which spoke of the presence of God, to Mount Zion. Now, follow me on this. Mount Sinai, in the minds of the Israelites, from the day that that first generation stood there, generation after generation, you said Mount Sinai to them, what they thought about was, we can't come close to that. God's awesome, God's powerful, but man, we can't come close to that. But when you thought about Mount Zion, you had an entirely different sense. Mount Zion was the place that you could go to. Not only was it approachable, you wanted to come there. Whereas Mount Sinai had you running in the other direction, Mount Zion had you coming in the direction of where that mountain was. It spoke of the presence of God. It spoke of God being approachable. Mount Zion was seen as a place of refuge, a place of peace, and a place of joy. And what he's basically trying to say here with this word picture is, 
the idea you have in your mind when you think of Mount Sinai is God is unapproachable and I can't close to, can't get close to him. The idea that you have when you think of Mount Zion is God saying, come to me. Come to me. Come into my presence. You see, the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews is God is saying, I want you close to me. I want you in my presence. And I'm going to do everything I can to make it possible for you to come close to me and for you to come into my presence. Notice it's the city of the living God. Now, every word of Scripture is there for a reason. It's the city of who? The living God. Not the stagnant God, not the dead God, not the God who was, but it is the living God. He is tying it right there to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere that Jesus shows up, there is life. Everywhere that Jesus comes to, He brings life. He is the living God. And His church, He intends to be alive. And when His church experiences His presence and comes into His presence, we will be infused with the life of God. We will be infused with resurrection life. When the Holy Spirit of God breaks loose in His church and we give way to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is going to be life because the Spirit of God releases the resurrection life of Jesus in us and through us. This is the city, he says, of the living God. Picturing coming into the presence of the Lord. It is also the idea of heaven. Because the city of the living God, here we transform into that dimension of heaven. And this, folks, is where to me it gets very exciting. It says, we have come to the city of the living God. Well, what is going on in the city of the living God in heaven? They are worshiping. People ask so often, what do you do in heaven? You worship. That's one of the main things you do in heaven is you worship. The Bible doesn't say much about preaching in heaven. It says that we worship in heaven. That means that I get an eternal vacation and Cheval Sherry is going to be working her head off. But, uh, <laughs> but the idea of heaven is that we're going to be worshiping Him there. But I want you to catch this. It says, we have come. The Greek tense there is in what's called the perfect tense. And it means that it has started and it will continue. In other words, when we worship, because He has brought us into His presence, when we worship, we are worshiping alongside of what's going on in heaven right now. This morning, they are worshiping in the Lord in heaven. I don't know what else I can tell you about what's going on in heaven. I can guarantee you this morning, they are worshiping in heaven. And as we worship, we join the saints that have gone before us, and we worship the Lord Jesus together. That's how we, God connects us. That's where the whole time and space thing gets wiped out by God. You know, those, all of us have got folks that have gone on before us into heaven this morning. People that we know, that we love, that have gone on before us. And we are connected to them by the work of the Holy Spirit and by God's work. And God just moves the whole time and space thing aside. And He says, I'm connecting you because together with those who have gone before us this morning, we join them in worshiping the Lord God. Every time we worship, we are uniting with them to worship the Lord God. That is that idea that he's given here. Now notice where he takes us next. He says, second word picture. We have come to a multitude, innumerable angels. What does he mean by that? We have come to an innumerable amount of angels. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels in festive gathering. 
Now, the word term there, festive gathering, spoke of the great national assemblies that they had in those days, as well as sacred games that the Greeks played. In other words, it was a term used to picture a huge group of folks gathered together celebrating. Sort of like a great big football stadium today with your team winning. Now, I have to say this. It's been a very quiet week for Washington fans. I heard all kind of trash talk. But uh, anyway, I won't deliberate on that. But nonetheless, Dallas won, but we won't go there. All right. They are gathered there to do what? To celebrate. Now, what does it mean by being gathered with all of these innumerable amount of angels? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. He's been talking about angels, and he says in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Are they not all, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I believe he's got two ideas in mind here when he talks about we come to this gathering of these angels. The first off, he's saying to those folks, God is sending angels to you to serve you, to take care of you, to look out for you. The Bible says in another passage of Scripture that folks have entertained angels unawares. You see, God sends angels to minister to, to take care of, and to walk alongside of His people. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says an angel came and ministered to Him. Let me tell you one of the, one of the lies that Satan will put you and I through. The more pressure we are under to serve and walk with the Lord, the more opposition we get, the more persecution that's going to be there, the more Satan tries to convince us that we are isolated and beside ourselves and alone. And he does that because it is a lie. And one of the reasons that it is a lie is because it's, we see this over and over again in Scripture. Every time God's people are under duress, what does God do? He sends angels to minister to them and take care of them and to walk with them through what they're doing. They are His servants on His behalf. Now, a lot of times we get the picture of angels, that angels are always walking around, you know, they're blonde-headed and they're big guys and they got these big wings on the back of them, etc. If something like that walked in here this morning, let me tell you what would happen. You all would be hitting the windows and the doors trying to get out of here, okay? And I'd probably be leading the group, all right? That is not the way angels do their thing. I mean, if they did, everybody would know they were an angel. The way they show up in the Scriptures most often is just in a looking like a regular human being. People don't realize that it's an angel there. They have to identify themselves. Hey, buddy, it's an angel here beside you. They have to identify themselves as that. So when God sends angels to you, don't be going out your door on a hard day looking for some big winged blonde boxer-looking guy with guns on his you know, arms to show up and say, Hey, honey, I'm going to take you through the day because that is not what's going to happen. You probably won't even realize that God has sent someone your way till after it's over with. 
I say, who in the world was that? But look for God to strengthen you. And that's the idea. We have come to a gathering of angels. Now, the second idea that he, I believe, is contained in this passage when he says these innumerable angels in festal attire is, again, the idea that, again, if you look in the book of Revelation, what are the angels doing in heaven? They are worshiping. They are leading the worship in many cases. Seraphim, the cherubim, etc., before the throne of God, leading worship. Notice what he says, we have come. What is he reemphasizing again? The Hebrews love to take an idea and reemphasize it over and over and over again. What is he saying? God's calling us to do what? To worship him. But when we worship him, what do we do? We are joining the angels in heaven right now in worshiping the Lord. Folks, we don't worship apart from eternity. We worship now in eternity. Do you realize what God is doing when we worship? We, see in it, we tend to see, you know, I come in church, go through the motions and go home. But that's not the picture he's got here. He's saying that he is calling us up and bringing us into his presence to join with the saints through the ages. We'll see this in just a moment. And with the angels to worship God. This morning as we worship, this wasn't just about what was going on in this room. It's in terms of what God's doing in terms of eternity. It is Our worship is in terms of what is going on in heaven. And our worship is getting us ready for that day that all of us will be in the presence of the Lord God. I don't come in here on Sunday morning and sing songs and worship the Lord to experience Jesus today. But I do it in terms of eternity. And this is a dress rehearsal for what is coming. Now next, he says, verse 25, the fellowship of other believers. Verse 25 Numerable angels, and he goes on from that. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And then backing up from that, he says, The heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festive clothing to the assembly of the firstborn. Now, what in the world is he talking about? The assembly of the firstborn. This assembly is the believers of all the ages. And notice how he describes them. And I gave you the wrong verse. Verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. The firstborn were those who had all the rights of inheritance. They are co-heirs with Christ. In other words, this assembly that we are a part of is that we have the rights of being co-heirs with Christ. Notice it next how he describes them. He says they are enrolled in in heaven. The Bible in the book of Revelation speaks of the book of life which lists all the true followers of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he says we have been called to this assembly of all the believers who are the firstborn, that is, we are co-heirs with Christ and inherit all that God has for us, and who are enrolled in heaven, that is, our names are written in the book of life. Again, what he is picturing here is all the believers of all the ages standing in the presence of God, and God says two things to this huge assembly. Number one, you are co-heirs with Christ 
of everything. My glory, my power, my blessing, all that I want to pour out upon you, you are co-heirs of that. And then the second thing he is saying to them is that you are in my presence and you are enrolled in my book. Bible pictures in the book of Revelation that when we stand in heaven someday, God has a book literally and he looks into it and he says, is your name there? And if your name is there, then in you come. And if your name's not in the book, then you're out the door. How in the world do you get your name in the book of life? Real simple. You choose to follow Jesus Christ. You see, when I stand before him someday and God looks in the book, He is not going to ask the question, did you go to church on a regular basis? Let me see if you're in the book. He's not going to look at you and say, how religious were you? Is your name therefore in the book? You don't earn your way into the book. We simply trust Jesus and we commit ourselves to Him and we follow Him. And those who have made that commitment to follow Him... Those are the names that are written in the book of life. Now notice how he follows that. The next word picture. God the judge. And to God the judge of all. What is he communicating to us there? Through that word picture. God the judge of all. Notice he's following that statement with those who are ruled in the book, whose names are in the book of life. Who do we come before? We come before God the judge. We must give an account to him. Nothing is hidden from him. He examines and he discerns our lives. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, all of us someday are going to stand before the Lord. And an aspect of that will be in judgment. And He's going to look at our lives and He's going to discern our lives. On that day, none of us can pull the wool over on him. No man can stand in the presence of God and say whatever they want to and get away with it. God will hold our lives. He will examine our lives. He will discern our lives. He will see the truth of who we've been and where we've been and what we've done. Everything that we've held and we've hidden and we tried to keep covered up, God sees it and God knows it. And we will all stand before him on that day and we will give an account to him for how we have lived our lives. That's the reason it does matter the decisions we make about how we live because we will have to answer to him for the decisions we've made about how we're going to live. So we may ask the question, well, what what chance do I have? What a hope do I have if I've got to go before God who's going to judge me and he knows all the crud that I've done, said, what chance do I have? Because the idea more or less is I'm just going to stand before him and just sort of shake in my boots and wait to get it. But the picture that he pictures here 
is that when we stand before Him, we don't come by ourselves. If we did, we are in a heap of trouble. We stand before Him with Jesus right beside us. And the Lord Jesus Christ standing beside us says, Father, I want to present my child to you. The one that I died for, shed my blood for. And yes, they did all kinds of crud, but I took it all on the cross for them. And I took the punishment for them. And so I want to present them to you. Oh, folks, do you get this? That that day in judgment when we stand before the Lord, if you know Jesus and you follow Jesus, when we stand there, it is not to stand in shake in judgment. It is to stand there with Jesus beside us and hear Him call our name and present us to the Father as belonging to Him. That is the reward of faith in walking with Him. He goes on from that, verse 23. And notice how he moves now into this sort of victory chant. He says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is the idea of the church. Those who have followed and sold out to Jesus are made perfect. The idea there is that we have completed everything that God designed for us. We have completed everything that God has designed for us. What is God doing? He is moving us forward deliberately, strongly, to bring to completion in our lives everything that God has for us. It's when our faith is going to give way to sight. It's when God's glory is going to be fully experienced. And in that day, the love that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been sharing together, we are going to share with them on that day. Verse 24, next word picture. It says that Jesus, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The word mediator there means our go-between. It means that Jesus is our representative before God. It means that as Jesus steps into the presence of God with us, he comes as the Son of God, and he comes with all that he has accomplished on the cross. And when Jesus stands there and presents himself on our behalf to God, it means that he is there perpetually, that means eternally, and his work prevails in the presence of God. As I said just a moment earlier, the idea basically is this, that when we go into the presence of God on that day of judgment, we will stand there and Jesus will present us to the Father. He will be received. That is, the Son will be received, number one, because He is the Son of God. And number two, He will be received and we will be received because He will point to what He did on the cross in the giving of His life and the shedding of His blood and three days later in His resurrection. And so that we are received because of what Jesus did, He has gone before us. But it doesn't stop there with Him being the mediator. Oh, follow me on this. The idea of Jesus being the go-between between us and God is that when you and I go to the Lord in prayer, Jesus carries our petitions to the Father. He carries our request to the Father. And I cannot say this strong enough. And I've said this to you before, and I'll say it to you as long as I'm your pastor, okay? But I can't say this strong enough. I guess... When, if you, when you and I talk about how I just don't know what to say in prayer, and I just don't know how to pray, and I'm just not a good prayer, blah, 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 blah. 
God doesn't give a rip about that. In fact, if you think you're a good prayer and you really say the right words, you stink in prayer. Because your confidence is in yourself, not in Him. And if my praying and my prayer life is dependent on me, I don't care how good and much I press other people, it stinks to God because I'm trusting me instead of Him. This idea of what he's saying is Jesus is my mediator is when I go to Him in prayer, I say, Lord, I'm coming to you in the name of your Son. I'm coming to you because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm coming to you because your son is alive and well. I am coming and I have confidence that you're going to hear me, not because of how good I say it or right I say it, but because Jesus takes it. Jesus takes my request to the Father. He holds it in the presence of the Father. He presents it on our behalf. And so, Lord, I know you're receiving what I'm saying, not because I feel it, but because Jesus said he was going to do it. Jesus is my mediator. That is where my confidence, my confidence is not in me in prayer. It is in Jesus being my mediator when I pray, taking it to the Father. One final thing on him being the mediator. This is a sermon in itself, and I don't have time to preach it. The Bible says that he prays for us. Can you imagine that? The Son of God is praying for you. He doesn't put any qualifications on it. He just says that he's praying for you. The next day you have a rotten day. Know who's praying for you. The next day you feel lonely and isolated. Know that he's praying for you. The next time you feel overwhelmed, know that he is praying for you. Can you imagine that? That the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is praying for you. I have an idea his prayers get answered. And whatever he's praying for us, God is going to answer the prayer of his son. Finally, verse 24, last word picture. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What was the blood of Abel about? His brother Cain killed him. And his blood, the book of Genesis said, cried out for vengeance and judgment. That was the blood of Abel. What is he talking about here when he talks about the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? The priest of the Old Testament would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the very presence of God, and there was a gold slab that was laid across the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat. And they would stand with the blood of a lamb, and they would sprinkle the blood of a lamb on the mercy seat. They are in the presence of God. And what that represented is that God was covering up the sin of the nation of Israel. But Jesus' blood, after he died, was sprinkled in the heavenly tabernacle, not to cover up sin, but to take out sin completely. His blood did what all those lambs' blood never could do. And that is that His blood takes out sin completely. It breaks the power of sin. It breaks the power of guilt. It breaks the power of shame. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. My brother killed me. He deserves vengeance 
and judgment. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cries out forgiveness. It cries out forgiveness. His blood for time and eternity means that we can be forgiven. We can be set free. We can be released. The race of faith is worth it because it takes us to the city of God, into His presence. The angels both now and in eternity will be there to walk with us, to serve us, to help us, to worship with them. The reward is the eternal fellowship of being with other believers. Yes, it is standing before God as our judge, but it is knowing that our victory is complete in Christ. Jesus is our mediator before God. And His forgiveness, secured by His blood, takes out our sin. That's the reward of the race of faith. That's what's to be found in His arms. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've shown us in this passage. Lord, we live so confined to time and space, but you do not. Thank you that this day we worship alongside the angels in your presence. We worship alongside all the saints who have gone before us. Lord, we are connected to them by you and we worship alongside of them. But Lord, we live for the reward that is coming of being in your presence, of worshiping you. But we also live, Lord, this day in the reality of you as our mediator, presenting us to the Father. And Lord, we live for that day when you will present us to the Father God. Our names written in the book of life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you are here today, or if you are listening through any of the ways that this service is shared, and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, your name's not written in the book of life. You have not made that decision to follow him and serve him. I want to encourage you this day, yes, even beg with you this day, to say yes to Jesus. To say that, Lord Jesus, I will follow you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. And it all starts with praying one simple prayer to him and then putting our feet in action. Jesus, forgive me. And Jesus, I will follow you. Lord Jesus, forgive me. And Lord Jesus, I will follow you. If you're here today or listening, we would love to encourage you in that decision. We have a little booklet it speaks about how to grow in Christ. Just contact us and we will get that into your hands. For those of you here, they're in the four years of the church here. It's called Living in Christ. And it will help you start that walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to worship you now. And as we do, we recognize that we join with the angels in worshiping you. And we recognize that, Lord, we join with the saints through eternity in worshiping you. In your name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.